Good morning again. If you would take out your Bible, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 will provide the text for our lesson this morning. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 12 here in just a moment. Again, we're glad that you're here, especially those who are visiting with us. We're so appreciative for your presence, and we pray that we've afforded you the opportunity to worship God as we studied in our Bible class uh, in spirit and in truth. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 12. As school has begun now, basically for everybody, uh, I want to read some verses from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12 through 14 together, and I think these verses apply really, really well to that idea of going back to school. So read those verses with me, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren... That the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, Paul says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. You're probably saying, now Reagan, let me get this straight. Are you really, truly comparing, we see Paul here in prison in Rome, are you really comparing going back to school with going to prison? Yeah. No, no, not really. That's not the, really the idea that I want us to get across. But I do think the attitude and perspective that Paul has here is valuable to us is valuable not just to kids and teachers and administrators and staff going back to school. It's valuable to all of us as Christians at any age, at any level of maturity in our faith, as we find ourselves in new physical environments. Whatever that environment is, wherever it is, and whatever stage of life we're in, I believe these three verses in Philippians chapter 1 can be absolutely helpful to us as we enter into those new places. I saw an interesting paraphrase of these verses that kind of got me thinking along these lines. Again, this is a paraphrase. It's not an exact translation of what we see in these verses. But I think it is a good summation of the thought, the principle that we find here in Philippians 1, 12-14. The paraphrase says this, Everyone here knows I'm here for the cause of Christ. Is that true? Is that true of you, wherever you are? Does everyone there know that you're there for the cause of Christ? Uh, Mike called me earlier this week regarding his comments before the Lord's Supper, and we talked for, I don't know, 40 minutes, something like that maybe, uh, about what he was going to say and working through some of those ideas, and he said some things and I said some things, and, and uh, at the end of the conversation he said, okay, I'm going to go up and I'm going to say that, when you get up in your sermon, you've got to clean up anything I messed up. So here I am, ready to clean up. No, I don't need to clean anything up, but may I emphasize, may I emphasize the concept that he expressed to us very, very well, that this idea of our commitment to Christ and his cause, who we are as Christians, is not just a matter of communing with Him for a few minutes on Sunday. No, this Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of our fellowship, of our communion with Him 
all the time in every environment. And we are reminded here on the first day of the week so that we'll live that way there when we go off into our places of work, to our places of play, to our places of school, to our homes, to our families, where everyone here, wherever here is, wherever I am, knows I'm here for the cause of Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Teachers and students, is that true of you at school? To the rest of us, is that true of you at work and our friend groups? Even when we're here together as Christians, does everyone here know you're here for the cause of Christ? Not for tradition, not to make somebody else happy, but you're here for Jesus Christ. Is that really why you're here? Is that why you're anywhere that you are? It was for Paul, and even in his chains that was true of him. And we often talk about Paul's perspective from later in this chapter, where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And how we as Christians need to imitate that kind of perspective and outlook on life, where it's a win-win situation. If I, if I die, I get to go and be with Christ. If I live, I continue to live for Christ. But may I suggest that we should imitate this perspective of Paul as well. I want to examine his perspective here in these verses preceding those. And if we can see this perspective clearly, maybe we can imitate him wherever we find ourselves, from the penthouse to the jailhouse. We should imitate Paul's perspective, first of all, and this is really the main point, and then the the other two verses build on this idea, but we should imitate Paul's perspective on the things that happen to us. Read verse 12 with me again, if you would. Here Paul finds himself uh, perhaps under house arrest, perhaps he's in some sort of holding facility. Whatever the case might be, he's, he's under lock and key. He's, he's in chains in Rome, and he says this to the brethren in Philippi who have supported him, who have sent him money and provisions and people to take care of his needs. He says to them in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. There is an an expectation, an assumption perhaps on the part of the Philippians in this text that the things which had happened to Paul were bad. Uh, And in some ways, yeah, they were bad. Isn't that what we would assume if we know what happened to Paul here? Bad for Paul? Bad for him personally, bad for the gospel and the proclaiming of it because he's locked up, bad for the reputation of Christians in Rome that that one of your main guys, one of your main preachers is now in prison here in Rome. Surely that seems like that's a bad thing. Uh, Imagine for a moment that that you've been talking to a a non-Christian. So you've been talking to them, and, and, and maybe we've got a gospel meeting coming up. In fact, we do next Sunday, right? So, so you've been talking to this person, and you've been telling them about this preacher that is coming, and he's amazing. He's amazing, this preacher. Uh, the, well, that's Paul, the apostle for the brethren in Rome, right? And you've got this incredible theological but practical letter from this preacher where he says he's coming to see you soon. Well, that's the book of Romans, for these brethren in Rome, which has already been written to them at this time. And you've got people in your congregation, in your church, who know this preacher, and they talk about how great it's going to be when he gets here. 
Well, that's Aquila and Priscilla in Romans chapter 16 who, who know Paul personally, know him very, very well, and no doubt they were telling everybody else how great Paul was. And when he finally gets to town with all of this anticipation, he's under arrest <laughs> with an ankle monitor and a parole officer about to go to trial for a capital offense. Well, that's Paul and his chains and his house arrest and his Roman guard and his appeal to Caesar. And you have to tell people, hey, you know that great preacher that I was talking about? Um, He's under arrest. But I promise you, it is because of his faith. I promise you, he's under arrest because of how good he is, not how bad he is. That would seem like a bad development for the cause of Christ, wouldn't it? Imagine you're Paul. Put yourself in his shoes. And we know what happened to him for him to end up in Rome. We know most of those things from the book of Acts. So you're under arrest. If you're Paul, you're under arrest uh, for a crime that is really just trumped up charges. You haven't done anything wrong. And, And you sit in prison for two years while nothing happens in regard to your trial. And you talk to the judges over your case quite a lot, uh, but because of political pressure on them, they, they won't let you go even though they know, even though they tell you they know you're innocent. And you finally have to, to as a last resort, you appeal to a higher court. That's what Paul does. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as you appeal, there's a new guy who comes in and he says, well, if you hadn't appealed, I probably would have let you go. How frustrating that must have been. And then your journey to Rome is terrible. You're shipwrecked along the way. And you have to wait in the capital in Rome for who knows how long, waiting for your case to come up, not knowing whether you're going to live or whether you're going to die. And in the meantime, there's all these people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ who are talking bad about you. Those do not seem like good conditions for the world's greatest traveling evangelist to evangelize. But Paul says a very powerful word. Actually, (laughs) actually, it's worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul saw the opportunity, and he made the most of that opportunity, and the gospel was preached despite all of the terrible things that he had to go through in order to get there. We should all be looking at all of the things that happen to us and around us. But may I suggest especially the bad things that happen to us and around us and ask, how can this turn out for the furtherance of the gospel? Because here's the thing, it can. It can turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. I would suggest that Philippians 1, 12-14 is a real-life living example of what Paul actually told to these same Roman brethren In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now notice that he doesn't say that all things are good, but they work together for good. Paul being accused of things that he didn't do, that wasn't good, but it worked out for good. Paul having to go to Rome in chains, that wasn't good but it worked out for good. All of those things actually worked out for the furtherance of the gospel, just like Paul told the Romans, well, that's what God can do in all these situations. God can make that happen. But we, as Christians, have to be looking for the opportunity in the midst of bad things that happen to and around us. 
we should be willing to ask the question, and for each of these points we have a question to ask, what is my spiritual opportunity here? If everyone here is supposed to know I'm here for the cause of Christ, what is my spiritual opportunity here? Instead of just bemoaning our physical hardship, and I'm not minimizing that hardship. Please, please understand that. But what I am saying is, whatever the hardship is, there is a spiritual opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. Can I have more influence because of the things, even bad things, that happen to me? Can my contentment and godliness in the face of injustice and suffering or pain reflect Christ to others? And that's manifested in two ways in, in the next two verses. We should imitate Paul's perspective on the things that happen to us and, and that means that we imitate Paul's perspective as well on the influence that we can have on the world. Read verse 13 with me. So that, it's turned out for the furtherance of the gospel actually, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. Um, there's some debate as to who exactly these people were. It was probably the, the praetorian guard. These are like the elite soldiers who were there at the capital primarily like... Uh, like the secret service or special ops, if we want to put it in, in our terminology, in our time period. And these were the people that Paul would have had interaction with as he's awaiting his trial. And he says, it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, everybody else I've come in contact with in Rome, that my chains are in Christ. This should be our purpose for being here, wherever here is. School, extracurriculars, work, family, friends, recreation, whether here is Lufkin or Hudson or Huntington or Central or Dieball or somewhere else, whether you're in a primary school or elementary or middle school or high school or work at the central office, everyone here knows I'm here for the cause of Christ. This isn't just our purpose in these places, of course. It's our purpose in being here more generally. By that I mean by being here on earth. That's our purpose the influence that we can have on the world. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? If you want to turn back there with me, maybe mark your spot in Philippians, Matthew chapter 5. You know these verses, don't you? Many of us do. They're fundamental to the Christian faith and what Jesus expects of us. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You... You Christians, you kingdom citizens, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, you Christians, you kingdom citizens, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your, and that's plural, your, all of y'all, right? All of you Christians, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, there's something I've thought a little bit about. Maybe you've thought about this too. Um, why doesn't God, when we're saved, just... Bring us straight to heaven. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Like, we, we realize our sin, we realize that sin separated us from God, and, 
And when we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, we rise up out of the water, we just keep rising. You know, we, we just keep rising all the way to heaven. You know, beam me up, Scotty. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't, when we're saved, I mean, that's, that's, we're pure, we're holy, we're right with God. Why don't we just go on straight to be with Him? You ever thought about that? There are a number of reasons regarding, some people are saying, no, I've never thought about that. You will now. There's a number of reasons, I think, for that. Uh, a lot of them pertain to our growth and what, what we need to be doing and growing closer to Christ and preparing ourselves for the glory that is to come, all those sorts of things. But I think maybe the biggest reason is what's found here in Matthew chapter 5. We stay here because here is where the lost are. We stay here so that we can be an influence on others as long as we still have time and opportunity on this earth. God leaves us here to struggle and wait and sin and suffer so that I can be an influence. So our second question is, how can I influence the world here? How can I influence the world here in my struggle? By my patient waiting, despite my sin, and even when I suffer. Turning back to the book of Philippians, it's not just Jesus who said that in the Sermon on the Mount and really reiterates it in a number of ways throughout his ministry. We see that in the epistles as well, even in this epistle that Paul is writing from Rome to the church in Philippi. And Philippi and Rome actually have a lot of similarities. There are a lot of Roman citizens there. There are a lot of soldiers there. Uh, and it's possible, in fact, that some of the soldiers in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, would have known some of the soldiers there in Rome who are now exposed to the gospel. And what Paul says to these folks in Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, um, let's start reading in verse 12. Uh, 14 through 16 is really what I'm looking at, but let's start reading in verse 12 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Everything you do, you do for Christ. And in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Without murmuring and complaining is the idea there. As a Christian, you're supposed to do all things you do without this murmuring and complaining sort of attitude. And I don't know if you've worked with people before, but, but let me tell you, that, that makes you stand out, doesn't it? If you do the things that you do, good or bad, without without complaining and disputing, absolutely you're going to stand out. That, for this purpose, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, not without sin, but nobody can bring a charge against you without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine, how? As lights in the world. Living the Christian life, living our lives for Christ, despite chains or not, if we're living our life for Christ, we can have an influence on the rest of the world because fundamentally that's going to make our lives different. It's going to make us stand out. And not in some artificial way where I want everybody to see that I'm different than the rest of the world. Naturally, that's going to happen. 
Because the way I approach my life, the way I live my life, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I dress, the way I live is going to be different than a crooked and perverse generation. Being pure and straight in the midst of crooked and perverse naturally makes you different. Let me give you an example of this uh, opportunity for influence, even in the midst of, of difficulty. Um, anybody in here, raise your hand if, if you've ever had to do something you didn't want to do on the job. Ever had to do, or at school, you know, for those of you who aren't working, you've ever had to do, oh yeah, we've got a big hand over there. I, absolutely. I've had to do things I didn't really want to do. You know, that's an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity to show everyone there that you're there for the cause of Christ. Especially if they know, yeah, no, that's not something anybody really wants to do. But look at their attitude in doing that. Uh, maybe this is too inside the beltway, you know, preachers talking about a preacher. Um, but let me give you an example from, from my, my own personal work as an evangelist. Uh, I've preached a lot of funerals in my life. And I'm going to be open with you. That's not something I really love doing. Uh, those are hard. And that's the only time, really, uh, that I still get nervous before getting up and speaking before a group of people. Uh, now, I got, might get twitchy and excited before I get up to preach because I'm really excited about something. But, but you know that nerves, the nerves I'm talking about, that, that pit in your stomach that just feels horrible? Uh, well, I get that before, before I get up to preach a, a funeral. In fact, sometimes I get it several days in advance when somebody passes away and I know that I'm going to have to be the person preaching that funeral. Um, I, I care. And that care um, creates a burden. It comes with the territory. I'm not complaining about that, but, but it's not enjoyable. And I've had, to tell pe- uh, I've had people tell me, and, and I'm always so appreciative of this compliment. Um, I'm always appreciative, but I've heard people tell me, you're really good at that. You're really good at funerals. And when people tell me that, uh, I think two things to myself besides thank you. I do appreciate it. I think to myself, number one, I don't even know if I'm the best funeral preacher at this church. I mean, Harold's the best I've ever heard. But secondly, and, and please, please take this the right way, when people say, hey, you're really good at funerals, I think to myself, what a terrible, horrible thing to be good at. You know, when I, when I was a little boy and I thought about my future and, you know, these are the things that I want to be good at someday when I'm grown up. You know, funeral wasn't at the top of the list. You know, you're great at preaching funerals. It's, a, it's kind of a horrible thing to be good at in that sense, right? It's not something fun. It's not something enjoyable. It's not something that I want to do. But you know what? Actually, it's turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And I've had the opportunity to imitate and show Christ to others, even non-believers, by comforting and ministering to and serving people in the, in the very pit of pain. And I've had the opportunity to proclaim Christ Jesus to people whom I never would have otherwise had the opportunity to even speak to those people. And here they are, listening to the gospel message preached on behalf of the one who has passed away. Uh, Even I preached my grandmother's funeral, and uh, I have an uncle who's a school administrator, and uh, 
He showed the video of the funeral to some of his key staff at staff development at the beginning of the school year at at professional development. Now, that's crazy, maybe. Uh, Crazy does run in our family. But Christ was preached to people I don't even know. And in that, I will rejoice, even though going through it is very, very difficult. The hardest funerals to preach are those where there are a bunch of non-Christians involved including perhaps the person who passed away, when people don't have the same hope in Christ. I bet that's hard, people tell me. And I say, yeah, it is. But my perspective ought to be. The question I ought to ask is, how can I influence the world here? My perspective ought to be, actually, it's turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And it has even in people coming to Christ because of it. That's where I am. But what about where you are? To those students going back to school, you have the greatest opportunity for influence, not in the good and easy times where everybody's getting along and and the team is winning and everybody likes you, but in the bad and hard times when you have to do things you don't really want to do when the teacher or coach has it out for you, seemingly, when the group excludes you for your faith or your morality, when you aren't excluded per se, but you have to choose to not be involved in things because because those things are wrong. To teachers and administrators, the greatest opportunities for influence that you have are when you have that problem child who has never known selfless love from another. When you have that parent who just seems like a big bully, when you're overworked and underappreciated and everybody knows it, you can show others, wherever you are, what forgiveness looks like. You can model turning away from gossip to others. You can flee sin and pursue righteousness. You can be that example of working heartily as unto the Lord. You can be a picture of godly love. And you can show others what living a life of confidence because you know who you are, where you're going, and how you're going to get there no matter what bad things happen to you. You have the opportunity to influence the world. Your world. It is then, in those metaphorical chains, that you can show you're here for Christ. And if, like Paul, you suffer for Christ... If you're in chains because of your faith in Jesus Christ, all the better. Notice one more passage, 1 Peter chapter 3 on this point. We'll just read this together. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, loved ones, and this applies to going to school and everybody else. Loved ones, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, you're going to have to go through some tough times. As though some strange thing has happened to you. This is not unusual. Verse 13, 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached, For the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people matters. So you deserve to suffer, is what he's saying, if you do that. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter because of the influence that you can have in the world. And then finally, we should imitate Paul's perspective on the influence that we can have on other believers. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1 one more time and read verse 14 with me. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, Do you know by any chance who the Caesar was, who the emperor was in Rome at this time? Uh, In all likelihood, if based on when we think this letter was written, this was taking place during the reign of Nero. Yes, that Nero. And whatever you think of our government officials today, good or bad, they aren't putting people on stakes and lighting them on fire because of their beliefs. And now Paul is in prison, having appealed to that Caesar and having to later go before him in trial. And the brethren, no doubt, were shaken, unsure, and tempted, I'm sure, to, to try and hide their faith a little bit, not be so open about their allegiance and loyalty and faith in Christ because of the environment in which they found themselves in this crooked and perverse generation. But this was an opportunity for Paul to be the living example and embodiment of all of those things he wrote in Romans chapter 8. We just read, in fact, we just put it on the screen, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 a moment ago. I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 8, and I want you to see how these things he wrote in the past to the brethren in Rome where he is now are now being personified in who he is and what he's doing with those brethren in their midst, in person. So Romans chapter 8, let's read first verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now remember, he's writing this before any of his imprisonment and and going to Rome and all of those sorts of things. let's, Let's drop down to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? even in chains. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things, no matter our circumstances? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, that's exactly what had happened to Paul. It is God who justifies. Whatever that physical court said, Paul knew that he was justified in the sight of God. Who is He who condemns? Well, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep 
for the slaughter. And even if that is true of us and the environment in which we find ourselves, verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ which is in Christ from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote that to the brethren in Rome before they knew him personally, before he was re- arrested, before he came to Rome. And he said this to him, and now he shows them that he lives what he wrote, and that had an influence on them and their boldness to speak the word of God without fear. And so our final question is this, how can I influence the believers here? I look to your left, look to your right. How can I how can I influence these believers here? But even more, wherever I find myself, at school or in my work, in my job, this is a lesson for all of us. But let me speak to our young people directly. You listening, young people? Be an example to the younger kids from church, especially if they see you at school or school events. If you do something you shouldn't, it just justifies that action to them. But if you stand strong and do the things you should, I cannot overstate your influence. Be an example to other believers at school or work or extracurriculars or your siblings at home because there are so many who are just waiting desperately for someone to stand up and to do the right thing. And maybe they won't do it first, but they can and will follow the good example of someone else. And that same concept applies to all of us who are adults. Be that example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. May we all be the Apostle Paul to them in that sense. May we all have this attitude and perspective and imitate him as he imitates Christ. And going back to Philippians one more time, In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind, this mind of humility and service, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if we all do that this school year, well, it will turn out for the furtherance of the gospel, and everyone here will know that we're here for the cause of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and you know what you need to do in order to become one, To put Christ on in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life, committing yourself to Him because of your belief in Him and love for Him, that opportunity stands before you. And if you're already a Christian and you need help and support from your brothers and sisters, we're here to help and support you. All you have to do is come now, while together we stand and while we sing.